As you know, we've been going through the book of James. <clears throat> In James, we find information about wisdom, which we all need, information about tongue control, which we also need, information about getting along together. As far as I know, our church gets along very well together. Thank God for that. We're to love one another. And certainly in the book of James, it talks about faith. And the big thing he's trying to get across is if you have a living faith, a real, genuine, true faith, then you will show it in how you live. It will become obvious in your deeds of love and kindness and following the Lord Jesus. So these are some of the things that the book of James <clears throat> talks about. Well, we've come now to chapter 5. Go to now, perhaps better said, come on now. You rich men, <clears throat> weep and howl for your miseries that shall come on you. <clears throat> your riches are rotted <clears throat> and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver has been eaten away, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped together treasure for the last days. Look, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields which is by you kept back by fraud, cries out. And the cries of them who have reaped, harvested, are entered into the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived in pleasure or indulgence on the earth and have been wanton. Really, you have not look to God like you should have. You've lived in a self-indulgent kind of way. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. I'm kind of taken by that statement, he does not resist you. We live in a time and a day and age where People learn to speak up and to resist and to demand justice and their rights. But it's interesting that Christians in going through persecution did not resist. They accepted this, but they trusted in the Lord. So we see in this passage that it's talking about fraudulent gain, a kind of thievery. If you gain something by fraud, really... It's an ill-gotten kind of gain, a dishonest gain. I think of Dostoevsky's famous book, Crime and Punishment. And so this passage is talking about that kind of thing, sin and judgment. Dishonest gains will gain us God's wrath, his judgment. Now in verse 3, it vividly describes this. 
The rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You've heaped treasure together for the last days. <laughs> That's a vivid description, isn't it, of the judgment that is to come. We don't like to think about judgment. We think, like to think of God as a great, big, wonderful, jolly, happy, loving Santa Claus who helps us all the time. But you know, in the Bible, we find two aspects of God's character. One is his love, another is his judgment. What a description, eat your flesh as, as if it were fire. You know, I remember when I was in high school taking chemistry, and I got a little careless at one point, and I got some nitric acid on my pants. And right away it, it ate through, made a hole or two. Well, the teacher helped me so it actually didn't eat through much and burn my flesh. But I can imagine the way it dealt with those pants, it could have just gone right on into me if we hadn't taken care of the situation. And I remember another time years later when I was in seminary, my first year. I worked on the ranch about 20 hours a week and then went to seminary four days of the week. On the ranch, we sometimes would go around and spread by hand fertilizer. We had, at times, ammonium nitrate. That was used in the Oklahoma bombing 20 years ago. It can blow up. Well, at any rate, we went around, we'd have buckets and walk around the trees and throw it out. And somehow I had cut myself, had a little bleeding thing here. Well, that ammonium nitrate got into it. And I think of this, eat your flesh as fire, because it actually went down, I'd say about a quarter of an inch maybe, or a little less, and it didn't heal right up. It would try to scab over and then had all the stuff had come out. And then this happened several times. As I recall, I think it took about two months before it actually healed over. And for half a century, I think at least I had a scar from that. And so it's kind of a vivid thing that I remember how something, an acid or whatever, can eat your flesh <laughs> like fire. Not a pleasant thought, is it? Well, these people who thought they were getting away with withholding wages from those who had worked in the field, who had gone out and harvested, farm workers, don't pay them, then I get to keep more money that way. So they were keeping back their wages. As I suggested last Sunday, some consider this a form of homicide, to withhold one's living, to be a kind of murder. And we saw also last week that in 1 John chapter 3, it tells us that to hate somebody is to murder them. Well, God sees all these things. And we sang about the Savior, didn't we? The one who came to die for our sins. The one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. We sing to him, Noel, an exclamation of praise to El to God. And so we find this issue dealt with here. 
this matter of being honest, not to have ill-gotten gains. Notice how it says in verse 4, the cries of them who have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of hosts. The old version says Sabaoth, that means armies or hosts. So God sees these things. They've lived in pleasure. They've lived in their own self-indulgences. They've lived in self selfishness in their lives. God has seen this thing. You've condemned and killed the just. He does not resist you in verse 6. I think of a place in the Bible that really highlights getting others' property, getting others' possessions in a wrong kind of way. The king was named Ahab. Perhaps you remember, he was one of the really bad kings of the nation of Israel. Go with me, if you would, back to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings 21. We find out about this bad person and his very bad wife, Jezebel. She came from the north, and she was a worshiper of Baal a false god, and his consort, Ashtoreth. Well, let's see what he did along the line that we're studying today of getting something that's not his, stealing. Chapter 21, 1 Kings. It happened after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near to my house, and I will give you for it, and it shall be good to you. I will give you the worth of it in money. So that was okay. He was offering it. And Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid it to me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. He didn't feel this was right. Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, because he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And then he acted like a little kid here. And he laid him down on his bed and turned away his face and he would eat no bread. <laughs> he was really upset and pouting about this. After all, he was king, wasn't he? He shouldn't be denied what he wants here. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him, and she said to him, Why is your spirit so sad that you eat no bread? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and I said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel's wife said to him, don't you now govern the rule, the kingdom of Israel? Get up, eat bread, let your heart be merry, 
I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now, how's she going to work that out? So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters to the elders, to the nobles that were in the city living with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, see how wicked she is, proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people and set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You did blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. That was quite an evil plan, wasn't it? And the men of the city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had said to them, as she sent, and as it was written in letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast, and they set Naboth on high among the people. In other words, they set him up uh, in court to judge. And there came in two men, children of Belial, these are bad guys, and sat before him, and the men of Belial witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. Now, that was an awful way of <laughs> getting, of stealing, wasn't it? A good man, a farmer, took him out and murdered him. Covetousness on King Ahab's part, and his wife then assisting him in a terrible way. Then they sent to Jezreel, Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. And it happened when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Get up, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, because Naboth is not alive, he's dead. And it happened when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up, to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite and take possession of it. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Get up, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Look, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to possess it. And then speak to him, saying, This way, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? So he was considered responsible too. And you shall speak to him saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? <laughs> He didn't want to hear the truth. He considered Elijah an enemy because he told him the truth. He told him what was going to happen. And he answered, I have found you because you have said to yourself to work, sold yourself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Look, I will bring evil upon you and will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab him who urinates against the wall, and him who is shut up and left in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebite, 
and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah, for the provocation wherewith you have provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel also the Lord spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him who dies of Ahab in the city, the dog shall eat. And him who dies in the field, the birds of the air shall eat. But there was none like to Ahab, who did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. Interestingly enough, you read the rest of the chapter, you'll find that actually then Ahab did come to repentance of a sort. And judgment on him was delayed a little bit. But then in the next chapter, you find that judgment came. Someone drew a bow at a venture. I, I gather he just thought he'd take a shot, a long shot. And somehow it says the arrow went and went between the joints of the armor of King Ahab. And he ended up being killed by that arrow. His wife didn't die at that time, but when the kingdom was overthrown by a guy named Jehu, who was a furious driver, like sometimes on the freeway, we kind of hold our breath when we see the way some people drive. He driveth furiously, it says in the old King James. Well, it happens that he took over the kingdom and he went and where Jezebel was, and she spoke out against him, and he asked who was on his side, and some of the servants up there, some eunuchs, said they were. He said, throw her down. So they tossed her down, and she was killed, hitting the pavement below. Later they decided to bury her, but when they went to find her body, <laughs> I understand like but all that was left were some, some hands. The dogs had taken care of her like had been prophesied by Elijah. So it doesn't pay, does it, <laughs> to go against the Lord? It doesn't pay to give in to covetousness. Well, what does God really expect us to do? How does he expect us then to live? Well, we find something very interesting in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Last night when I was in bed, I was thinking about this, and I got up to check on a thing or two in the scripture about today's message. And I thought about something in Thessalonians that I wasn't planning to mention this morning, but I think God wants me to mention it. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 gives an ordinary way of how he expects us to live. Not like Ahab, not like Jezebel, not like the rich who would keep back the wages of their laborers. Ordinary people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. That you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands like we commanded you that you may walk honestly toward them who are without, which I believe means paying your bills and not withholding what is rightfully theirs, and that you may have lack of nothing, 
So not only will you give a good witness by taking care of your debts, but you will also have enough to live on and God will take care of you. Another way beautifully expressed to those who have a lot of goods is found over a couple books in 1 Timothy. This is the one that I was going to share and I want to share it as well. 1 Timothy, last chapter, chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Now bear in mind, when it talks about those who are rich, let's not exclude ourselves because we're all, in comparison with peoples of the world through the centuries, we're all really rich in comparison. And even those today, there are so many in very difficult situations. I'm sure our friend Chris, who's like a family member when he was serving in the service over at Cotter and other places, saw many of the poor of the world. It makes us so happy that God has allowed us to be in a country that is prosperous and is doing so well financially as we are. And that financial help has trickled down to the ordinary citizens. There's a standard of living such as never been seen in general, in our country especially. Anyway, when it talks about rich people, <laughs> I think we need to really include ourselves in comparison with others. Here's what it says, 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 17. Charge them who are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor depend on uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. By the way, that's anti-asceticism. We legitimately may enjoy things that God has given us. We can enjoy a good turkey dinner like we had last Sunday. Perhaps in your own Thanksgiving time, you at home had the same thing or a special kind of meal. We can enjoy things, but it tells us don't depend on uncertain riches, money, possessions. These things can come and go. And when we go to the afterlife, we leave it all behind, don't we? So don't depend on those things. They're uncertain, undependable. But instead, it says depend on God. And as we're gathered here, we're affirming, are we not? our dependence on the Lord. And then it goes on further, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. In other words, to share of their riches, to help God's work, to help other people that have need. And here's what happens, verse 19. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Instead of treasuring up judgment, instead of looking forward to fire that would eat their flesh, as it were, they're treasuring up something good. God sees these good things that his people do, do and he will reward these things. Having said that, let's go back to the book of James, picking up with verse 7. 
last chapter. Be patient or be enduring. Be persevering. Therefore, brothers, unto the coming of the Lord. Oh, James believed that Jesus is coming again. We believe that Jesus is coming again, do we not? Why do we believe that? Because he said he would. <laughs> he doesn't lie. Oh, you might say it's 2,000 years have gone by. He's not going to come. Unbelievers say that, but God's people need not ever say that. What's a thousand years to God? It's like a day. <laughs> Eternity is upon us. Anyway, he's going to come at his time in his way. And it says we are to endure until he does appear. We don't know when he's coming. He has not seen fit to let us know. In fact, he says no man knows the day or the hour. So therefore, he says, be ready at all times. Be patient, therefore, brothers, to the coming of the Lord. Look, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, and he has long patience for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient, establish your hearts, because the coming of the Lord draws close. It's getting closer and closer, is it not, every day? So what do we see here? He uses an illustration. They looked for the latter rain. The early rain, perhaps in fall and winter. But then they needed that latter rain, another rain that would come in the springtime. And that would help with the crops. They were very much dependent on this kind of thing. And so we're to establish our hearts we're to look for God's intervention, God's help, and God's promises. Then it throws in something interesting I find in verse 9. Grudge not one against another, brothers, or grieve not, or grumble not, <laughs> lest you be condemned. Look, the judge stands before the door. God is the judge. In a sense, if you grumble against someone, if you, you grieve because of them, you're judging them. And so it says, don't do that. God is the judge, not us, as it were. Take my brothers, now he gives a couple examples here. Take my brothers, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord, as an example of suffering, affliction, and of endurance. Look, we count them blessed who endure. So he goes on to say, you've heard of the patience, the endurance of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So the example of the prophets, they suffered, many of them. Tradition tells us Isaiah, the prophet, we read from his book, didn't we, all together earlier. Tradition tells us that he was actually sawn in two with a saw. We read about one named Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. We read about Jeremiah, the sufferings he went, being thrown into a pit and in other ways, the weeping prophet. 
the prophets did suffer because they took their stand for Jesus. And those of us who really take our stand for Jesus may endure suffering as well. In fact, it says in 2 Timothy 3 that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So it says, here's an example of suffering, enduring affliction, and God's blessing, the prophets. But then he mentions a second one, and who's that? He said, Job is a great example of suffering. Some of you, maybe all of you, have read the book of Job, maybe more than one time. Job didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. The reader is let in. He's informed at the very first chapter to what's really happening. Job is being tested. The devil was saying, you know, take away what he has. He trusts you, he loves you because you've given him so much. Job was a well-to-do man. The Lord let Satan get after him. He said, but save his life. So he did. He went through some horrible sufferings. He lost his children. He lost basically his possessions. He lost many of his servants. He was in a horrible situation. How did he respond? He said, I came from my mother's womb naked and I shall go back there. I think he meant to the ground. I naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan was wrong. Job would not turn against God if his possessions and his family was taken from him. But then Satan wasn't finished. He said, let me add him. Let me add his body. Okay, God gave him permission. And we gather in the scripture that he was covered with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He sat down among ashes and he scraped himself with some pieces of pottery. Then to make matters worse, his wife comes and she says, curse God and die. <laughs> and then his friends come. Seven days they sat and mourned with him, kept their mouths shut, which was a good thing. But after seven days, they started talking. Job had started first talking. He wished he'd never been born. How, it was terrible what he was going through, what he was enduring. Then they started talking and responding to what he was saying. And the gist of what they were saying is, Job, God is just, God is righteous. This could not have happened to you unless you were a big bad sinner. And as you read the book, they argue, he argue, they go back and forth, and he's saying, no, I'm, it's not that. Uh, I've, I've helped people. I've tried to be what I ought to be. And we saw he wouldn't turn against God. And they were saying, no, it doesn't make sense. God wouldn't be doing right if he let this happen to you, and you weren't a sinner. You're a bad sinner. Now, of course, Job had a sin nature like we all have, but basically he was a good man, a man who trusted God and tried to live for him and who helped poor people, who wanted to obey God. And so you find these arguments going on throughout the book of Job. And then what happens? God reveals himself to Job. 
I don't know if Job really truly did find out what the real situation was, but he wouldn't turn against God. He wanted to argue his case with God, but then after God revealed himself, he gave up. I'm not going to argue with God. And then what did God do? God healed him. No more boils. God gave him back ten children. He had lost ten. God gave him back servants. God doubled his possessions. Possessions, money, financial worth was often measured by how many animals you own, like sheep and camels and so on. So he got all these things back. A beautiful picture of enduring something that's awful, <laughs> suffering, affliction, and the, seeing the end in the blessing of the Lord as we successfully persist. Then we come to an interesting verse, verse 12. James 5.12. But above all things, my brothers, do not swear, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into condemnation or hypocrisy. Jesus said something along this line in the Sermon on the Mount. Go with me, if you would, back to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it has been said by them of old time, you shall not forswear yourself, but you shall perform to the Lord your oaths. But I tell you, don't swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it's his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, he said, don't swear by anything. Just be truthful all the time. Yes is yes, no is no. But let your communication be yes, yes, no, no, for whatever is more than these comes from evil. So I would say that would include swearing by the Bible, too. Put your hand on the Bible. I think he's basically saying here, don't do that. We can't swear by our head. We can't swear by other things, by heaven, whatever. So he says, don't do it. When I was pastoring in Los Angeles many years ago, a thief broke into the church facilities. I had a nice typewriter that I, my mom had given me. It got me through seminary, had to write a ton of papers. It's amazing. I had one teacher that believed in teaching the old traditional European way. And basically, he didn't believe in tests. He just made you write tons of papers, more and more papers. Still have those good things to have. I think you learn a little better that way. At any rate, the typewriter was stolen. And they caught the thief. He'd climbed in a window in the bathroom, and he'd broken into the study, wrecked the door, and, and he got my typewriter, which I had there. 
And the judge, when he asked me to swear, I asked him, may I affirm? And he agreed to that. So you don't have to swear, you can affirm. And that gets you by legally and keeps you from doing what Jesus said not to do. So I witnessed that my typewriter had been there and then, then it wasn't, it was taken. And he said, the judge, was anything else taken? Basically, I didn't know of anything else that was taken. Well, he said some, some tokens, some bus tokens were taken that was, were there. Well, apparently the thief had admitted that. I hadn't noticed that they were gone. So he got those things, but I didn't have to swear. My son, Kerry, was thinking about being here, I think, today, because he asked me twice what I was going to speak on, but he ended up going home yesterday. And I mentioned about this thing about swearing, and he remembered about a year or two after I married June, I adopted him and his brother, Mark. Their father had, had died. And he remembered that this thing of swearing was brought up and my son said, I said, he must have been six or seven and he remembered this. He said that I said, we don't swear, we affirm. <laughs> so that made a, an impression on him that I had said that. Anyway, how can we swear by these things? We don't have control of these things. Let our affirmation be yes or no. Be truthful, basically, all the time. Okay, then it goes into the concluding section here. This thing of anointing with oil and tells us what to do if we're suffering or if we're happy, very happy, or if we're sick, really sick, badly sick. What should we do? So let's go to verse 13. Is there among you any afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry, happy? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults, your sins, one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man subject to like passions like we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brothers, if any of you do err from the truth and one converts him, let him know that he who converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So it tells us what to do if we're in these various conditions. But what about this thing of anointing with oil? praying in the name of the Lord. What about this thing of healing? I believe God has done this many, many times where people have been seriously ill 
They've called for the church leaders. They've come and they've done this. And then God has done a miracle of healing. There has to be faith. But I believe there also needs to be God's will involved. If it's your will, Lord. Remember, that's what Jesus prayed in the garden. If it is your will, take this cup from me. Many of you have heard of a lady named Johnny, Johnny Erickson Tata. When she was 17 years old, she dove, hit her head, broke her neck, was paralyzed. It was so bad she wanted to die. Eventually, she found this scripture, knew the scripture, and she called for the elders. They came. They anointed her with oil. But then she wasn't healed. And then in the film that I saw about this, she basically said, maybe it takes more time. <laughs> and you know, eventually, we will be totally healed. But I think the key thought is, if it is your will, Lord, if it's your will, heal me. He can do it miraculously. We need to trust him fully, but we also need to commit it to him, not as an excuse for unbelief, but that we really, truly turn it over to him. The older we get, of course, the more we have to deal with things like this. Elijah is the great example here. We think of Elijah on Mount Carmel, don't we? Confronting the prophets of Baal. And the fire came down from heaven in answer to his prayer. There is also a legend about James who wrote this. That he was so much into fervent prayer that his knees were like camel's knees. <laughs> rough and hard. At any rate, Elijah prayed and no rain. He had told the king that was going to happen. It was a judgment. Actually, it went on for three and a half years. Not even due, it says. And then later, after the Mount Carmel thing, he prayed. And you can read about this in 1 Kings 18. And God sent rain, a whole bunch of it, in fact. They had to hurry up down off Mount Carmel, so much came. So he's a great example of prayer. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and sent the servants seven times until they saw that the prayer was answered. And so we are encouraged. Prayer is a vital thing. It expresses our trust. It shows our faith. It gets results. And you remember last Sunday we talked about from chapter 4, you have not because you ask not. There are actually things we miss out on because we don't pray in faith for them. If they're God's will, it says we're going to get them. But it cautions us about selfish kind of praying. And then the last thing it talks about here in the last two verses of this chapter is winning an errant brother or sister someone that's wandered away from the faith. We have a responsibility to people like that. We should try to help them. 
in a loving, kind way to come back to the Lord. Though their love to him may have faltered, his love to them remains steady. Have we ever maybe felt that we were not as close to God as before? Really can't go by feelings. He's still close to us. He still loves us. If there is sin that needs to be dealt with, we should deal with it. Others can help us doing that. It talks about confessing your sins one to another. When I was in seminary, though, the thought was this. If you sin against a group, you confess to the group. If you sin against an individual, you confess to the individual. If it's between you and God, you confess to God. And I think there's some validity to that. But at any rate, it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we confess to God, we turn from it, he forgives us, he wipes the slate clean by his blood, he gives us his righteousness, he helps us. Well, I hope this study in the book of James has been helpful to all of you. These things about humility, about love, about genuine living faith, about getting along and reaching out to others, all these wonderful things about tongue control. Book of James, very practical, very helpful. What a blessing it is to study it, to meditate on it, and to follow its precepts. Shall we bow in prayer? Thank you, Lord God, for the inspired book of James. Thank you that it helps us understand that our faith must affect our lives to be a genuine living faith. Deliver us from a deadness of faith. May we truly have lives that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that we trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May this Christmas season be a time of drawing nearer to you, of doing your will, of letting your light shine in our lives. Thank you, Lord. We bless you and praise you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.